the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's not the guns. Okay, if not for the guns at the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl parade, a 41-year-old woman with three kids wouldn't be dead right now, and 21 other people, including several kids, wouldn't have gunshot wounds. They have three suspects, and two of them are teenagers, and right now they're saying that the shootings were a result of some kind of a dispute which means a woman is dead and 21 people are injured because of teenage boy stupidity. Now, teenage boys have always had the potential to do really stupid things that put themselves and others in danger. A long time ago, it was drag racing, and I could have been killed lots of times when I was either driving like a maniac or in a car being driven like a maniac by one of my buddies. Uh, the difference is, that uh, now stupid teenagers, and they're mostly black and mostly from urban areas, sorry, but that's true, the numbers back that up, they're doing stupid teenager things with guns. Now, the stupidity of thinking that you can shoot someone in the middle of a gigantic crowd without considering that other people just might die almost surpasses the evil of the shooting itself. And politicians and people in the media of course, are blaming the guns. They'll talk about passing stricter laws, but pay attention to what little attention is given to where these kids got their guns. They obviously got them illegally. But why is it when these shootings happen, we never hear stories about the investigation into where the kids got their guns, and and most importantly, what happened to whoever they got them from? I never see stories about the guy Here's the guy that we found who gave the gun, the uh, sold the guns or gave the guns to so and so, who were involved in that uh, notorious shooting, you know, six months ago. You never hear it. Uh, so somebody made the guns available, and that somebody won't care about any new laws that are passed. So let's see how much time the media spend investigating who supplied these guns and what and how much jail time he or she gets. When we come back. Here's the headline from a military expert's column. Our military is weak. You should be scared. And he has some scary numbers. And in our second half hour, the stupidity of our governor's energy policy. Stick around. Well, with everything that's going on in the world right now, it would seem uh, like a pretty good idea for the U.S. to have a strong military. Dakota Wood is a senior research fellow in the Heritage Foundation Center for National Defense. He says that's exactly what we don't have, and uh, Dakota Wood joins us now. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, kind of a shocking statement, eh? Yeah, uh, the headline again, our military is weak. That should scare you. So how weak is it, and how scared should we be? Uh, Most of the major equipment the military uses is 30 to 40 years old, funded by Reagan and introduced in the late 80s, early 90s. So it's old equipment-wise. It's half the size it was when we last faced the strategic competitor, the Soviet Union. 
almost 600 ships back then. Today, we have fewer than 300, about 292. And its readiness rates are at near historic lows. So we've got the smallest army since the 1930s. Air Force pilots only fly half as much as they did during the latter stages of the Cold War. And units just can't get out to the field to train where they need to. So we've got great people, but they're training half as much as they should. We have half the size of the military that's needed on a global footing. And the equipment is uh, older than the people using it. Yeah, but other than that, Dakota, is everything pretty good? <laughs> other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, the play was great. Yeah. No, so I um, could any of this be attributed to um, changes in military um, this is the way the military operates and, and, and warfare and, yeah. and the kinds of equipment that you need. You don't need uh, the, as many ships because of the way wars will or should be fought? Yeah, there's a very attractive argument about technology, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, we've got uh, unmanned stuff, robotics, you have space-based capabilities, long-range precision guided uh, munitions, you know, like Tomahawk cruise missiles and other things that aircraft and ship. Uh, would shoot the submarines we have today are better than anything mankind has ever known. So there is this technical piece that makes a soldier or a pilot or a crew on a ship more effective than their counterpart. But the thing with technology is it also informs the production of the anti-platform weapons. So one of our pilots flying a pretty cool plane, which is very capable, is flying through battle space air, that's defended by a very modern, very capable anti-air defense system. And to make the anti-tank or anti-ship missile, those are much, much, much less expensive than the ship or the tank of the plane that they're designed to shoot down. So I can have a million-dollar anti-ship cruise missile, but if the ship costs a billion dollars to make, right, there is a cost uh, imposition strategy in place with the anti-personnel, anti-platform equipment. And then the U.S. military projects force thousands of miles from home, you know, whether it's in the Western Pacific or the Mediterranean, Indian Ocean, where have you, and our major competitors that threaten our interests abroad are always working very close to home. So you have to have this equipment that gets to where you want it to be in the world Hard to replenish that, hard to sustain operations, just very expensive. So the tech piece, very important, but it doesn't replace capacity. So you need capacity of capability as well. Well, in your piece, uh, you actually say that the government is not serious about defending the country. That's a that's a pretty strong statement, and that's kind of the number one um, duty of the government, isn't it? Yeah, if you look at you know the very few uh, uh, obligations given to the federal government by the Constitution and you know decades and decades of other rules and stuff, yeah. uh, it is supposed to do things that regular folks can't. You know, we can plant food and share things and take care of medical stuff at the you know personal, family, community level, but you can't defend you know against a nuclear armed iran for example or cutting us out of critical markets in the indo-pacific the federal government should be doing that but in any given year people are very attuned to the cost of gas or you know what you're going to buy at the grocery store or going out for dinner trying to make the argument about why you need so many tanks or ships 
for a potential war 10 years from now, it just doesn't resonate as well. So federal spending usually goes to domestic priorities. And then the military is kind of the secondary sort of thing. But you can't generate the military you need when war comes to you. you you've got to you know deal with what you currently have. Who's to blame? Everybody. <laughs> I'm not avoiding the question, but this problem has been um, we've documented with like 3,200 footnotes. Every fact and figure in this report uh, that, that I oversee uh, is, is firmly grounded. It's a 30-year story. So at the end of the Cold War, you know, the 1990s, everybody's making money hand over fist in Silicon Valley, and you just didn't have the kinds of competitors that are out there. Then we use the military in responding to the attacks of 9-11 for many, many years. We were in Afghanistan for 20 years using stuff up. So this spans a number of Republican and Democratic administrations, changes of power in Congress, and the government just hasn't informed the American public, right? So the public is largely unaware of these things. You can do what you want with the military because you're going against enemies, that have no Navy, no Air Force, you know, no combined land power. And so the message is awesome military does everything we want it to do, but it's shielding the public from the truth about what you would actually need it to do and what it takes to do that if you had a conflict with China or Russia or Iran or North Korea. So um, what's, what's, the, what's the next, what's the first step, I guess, to fixing it? And are people walking around in Washington, D.C., aware of this and, and ignoring it? Or, they, or is, it, is it just that they maybe they disagree with you? If, if you would tell them you thought the military was weak, are there people down there running around in the Pentagon who would say, oh, you're out of your mind. Come on, we're, we're fine. Well, yeah, well, I mean, you probably track the problems we're having in our recruiting, you know, if people oh, trying to yeah. get them to yeah. join the service. So if you said, hey, the military is broke, well, who would want to join a broken military? So there is an aspect of morale, of projecting a very confident, capable force that entices people, you know, to want to join. So the military is kind of reluctant to talk about major problems. If you talk about it in Washington, D.C., it almost demands a a larger budget. Well, how can that possibly be? Well, if you look at the cost of things to buy modern ships and aircraft and all the tech stuff we talked about, it's just inherently you know, expensive, right? And, and we've gotten used to 30 years of historically low levels of, of defense spending compared to what you needed in, in other times, you know, so that has been shielded. So it's politically unattractive because of budgets. We want low taxes. We want subsidies on health care and education, these other sorts of things. And you've got this boosting of the morale and the image projected by the U.S. military. So you know, what we're calling upon folks in these reports is just providing them with the data, with the actual facts, uh, giving historical references and what our friends are doing and they're not doing enough and what our potential enemies are doing and they're doing a lot. So if you see the improvements being made by the Chinese, truly a near nuclear Iran, enough material that if they spent the, the next month uh, fashioning what they currently have and enriched uranium, they could have a half a dozen nuclear weapons in a month. So, you know, people just aren't aware. The whole point to these things is to improve awareness. Well, at the uh, Heritage Foundation, you released something called the 2024 Index yeah. of U.S. Military Strength, which you've been working on for a while. Um, how much of this that you just relayed to us here 
did you just become aware of because of this research, and um, and were you surprised by what you found? Uh, yeah, a little surprised as we got into it. This is the, the 2024 edition is the 10th edition. So I've, I've been doing this with my colleagues now for a decade, and the picture has gone down. So this particular piece that was published that you referenced is, is essentially a 10-year overview. You know, what have trends been like? Where are we at now? And how did we get into such a sad state of affairs? So we make this report, the larger report, available on the website there at heritage.org slash military. Easy to read. It's all factually based. You can go to any fact or figure that you want. Um, you know, like I said, 3,200 uh, footnotes or citations. So we spent a lot of time doing things that real people doing real jobs, you know, if you're selling cars yeah. or, uh, you know, cleaning teeth, you just don't have the, the time or the access to do that. And so we spend time doing that and making that information available. Now, um, you're, you, you're doing this at, at the Heritage Foundation. Why is it the Heritage Foundation that's doing this and not the government itself? Uh, you know, part of it is time and attention and, and these political pressures that we've talked about. So, you know, if you're in one of the military services or you're a political appointee, what is the incentive or the imperative to be doing this kind of work? And what we're able to do is be outside of the Pentagon and look at these very large interconnected issues that people inside um, just either aren't able to do or they've got so much work to do in a given day that they don't have the time, right, to, to put all that stuff together. And usually defense officials are reflecting the policies of uh, whoever administration, you know, is in office, and those change from year to year. What we're able to do is do a consistent look at these things over time, you know, using the same criteria that then insulates us from the differences and the variations between one political party and another. So it's just an independent effort that does things that the military itself can't do. And what we have found is we're often informing the military about things that they're not aware of, like how many squadrons they have or flight hour programs. And, and it comes as kind of a shock to those who are actually in uniform. Yeah, that was my next question. Are you going to be showing this to the people, uh, the military people? And um, and if you have, what's been their response? You say they've been surprised, but they say, "Oh boy, we got to do something about that." Or do they say, "Geez, that's that's we're not we didn't know that was going on. Too bad we can't do anything about it." Yeah, well, it does come as a surprise. You know, actually, you know, my colleague that writes the Air Force section, John Venable, um, uh, informed and had to prove to the Air Force. Uh, about the number of squadrons that that they actually have. They had lost track of those things, if you can even imagine that, right? Um, uh, We haven't received any criticisms at all about the facts that we relay in the report. Usually the pushback we get from the military is our assertion that it's weak, right? Because nobody likes their baby, you know, being called ugly. And so then we come back with an explanation as to how we got to these conclusions. And then usually there's silence on the other end. So we provide the digital copies. We provide the actual printed report, which is something like 650 pages. I mean, it's a pretty hefty tome there. We hand deliver it to all key members of Congress that are involved with defense and foreign policy and intelligence matters, and we make it available to whoever's 
in the administration, you know, regardless of Democrat or Republican. I mean, it's an American thing. Can you defend the country or not? And because of the findings and what it implies about really getting serious, you know, about funding, modernization programs, those sorts of things, it's just too big of a lift, you know, and they've got other things that are more immediate that they want to address. And that's why we see this problem dragging on. Uh, as one of those other things, making sure everybody uses the right pronouns. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that horrible? Right. Uh, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, critical race theory. Um, it really divides the military, um, you know, uh, against each other or in itself. Instead of building teams, we're calling upon people to look at each other through a racial or a gender lens. Right. Yeah, and, and, and so it's, it's just. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say when when. When I see this, these stories, and you knew exactly what I was talking mm-hmm. about, and I, your reaction didn't surprise me, um, I see this, this stuff that's going on there, and I've had uh, people on, Elaine Donnelly, I don't know if you're familiar with yep. her, I've had her on to mm-hmm. talk about uh, you know, the, the military, and I, I can understand some stupid bureaucrat, a liberal bureaucrat, uh, trying to push DEI or all this, any of this other insane stuff on the military, but... Who in the military, how does someone who's been in the military for more than 20 minutes not know that this stuff is counterproductive and insane? And how did they get it? How do they get them? How are they getting cooperation from them? Yeah, so this is a strength and a weakness of the military in that it really does value civilian control. So the military official, the uniform person, will give best you know, best military advice, say this is going to be helpful or it's going to be harmful. And they deliver that then to the secretary of the Navy or, you know, some Pentagon official that's been imposed or put in place by the administration. The civilian then considers that and they say, we're going to execute or implement this. And then the military salutes because the order isn't illegal, right, even if it is stupid. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, you've got then an option on the uniform side. You can either resign in protest, and when was the last time you saw that happening, right, right, that we're aware of, or you try to implement as best you can because of this principle of civilian control of the military, right? Mm-hmm. And everybody will salute smartly, attend the class for an hour, everybody rolls their eyes, and then they go back out to try to fix the ship or the airplane, you know, to do the things that normally happen. I mean, my son is a young Marine, and I've asked him about this and said, yeah, dad, yeah, we'll go into the class. We'll have our DEI, you know, whatever for an hour. Yeah. And then we all go back out to the field and do what we've got to do. So it's a complete waste of time. Uh, it generates the perception that the military is way off track. So if you're a, a parent or a coach or some other influencer in a young high schooler's life, uh, you know, what is your advice then? You know, are you recommending, hey, it's a noble, valued thing to join the military or the military's all screwed up? I wouldn't go there. And that adds then to this perception of brokenness and it and it contributes to these recruiting problems that we're seeing. Is this something that only a war can fix? And I have less than a minute here. We're, we're, the white people think, up, I mean. No, I, I agree with you. I think it's human nature that it takes some kind of a calamity mm-hmm. to change behavior that that you aren't changing, you know, before the fact, right? You right. don't change your diet until you have the heart attack, that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. So my fear is it's going to take a, a catastrophe. Wow. Well, uh, we're talking to, we're finishing up here with Dakota Wood, Heritage Foundation Center for National Defense. You can find his piece at dailysignal.com. Where can they find the report? 
heritage.org, O-R-G, slash military. Thanks for coming on again, uh, Dakota. Always good to have you. Hope to talk soon. My pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. That's Dakota Wood. I'll be right back. Well, here's a scary piece of uh, government work. Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. The former governor of Pennsylvania, Tom Wolf, signed us up for that. And Josh Shapiro uh, decided to double down on it. Guy Shiraki is a senior fellow with the Commonwealth Foundation and a former candidate for U.S. Congress. He joins us now. Guy, thanks for coming on. Sure, John. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. Okay, so um, why did Shapiro have to go to court to um, stay in the regional greenhouse gas initiative? Well, uh, as you mentioned in in the lead up, um, Governor Wolf did this by executive order. Uh, he joined us in a, if you will, uh, an agreement or a partnership with 11 other states, uh, none of which produce natural gas like we do, none of which have coal like we do. But he pushed us into this agreement, and some folks took him to court saying, you can't do this alone. You need to do this with the legislature. You need to pass a law. Uh, Tom Wolf was still uh, in his, uh, you know, mandate lockdown COVID mode and thought he could just wield power. Unfortunately, Governor Shapiro has decided to double down, and he is going to the Supreme Court for the right to make this decision on his own. So he's not only trying to do something harmful to the economy, he's trying to do something by himself without the legislature and without really having input from voters like you and me. Uh, I used to refer to uh, Governor Wolf as His Excellency um, Mm. because that's who he he was like. He thought he was a king or, uh, I guess, some some kind of royalty when he was uh, overseeing the COVID insanity. Um, so you have to. You, he he just would rather do it with his pen than actually see if the you know the people who've been elected by the people would want to go along with it. That's nice. Yeah, and and the reality is the reason that Wolf did it by executive order, aside from the fact that he enjoyed ruling like a king, was that he knew. He didn't have support in the legislature. You know, it, it's it's amazing how governors want things or presidents want things, and sometimes the legislature just won't blindly go along. Uh, folks like you and me think that's how the process is supposed to yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. Supposed to fight about it and haggle it out. So he doesn't want to go to the legislature because not only are almost every Republican opposed to this, but a lot of Democrats were opposed to this. A lot of Democrats who represent communities that have natural gas or coal or who support the industry have tried to tell the governor to slow down. And again, I I remind your listeners, this was Governor Wolf and now Governor Shapiro forcing Pennsylvania into a partnership with 11 other states, none of which have the natural gas we have, none of which have the coal supply. So in essence, they uh, they all shook hands and promised not to produce gas or coal because they don't have any. And Pennsylvania said, well, we'd like to join that uh, agreement and commit economic suicide, uh, as I've written about it. And this is economic suicide for Pennsylvanians to to try to stop producing uh, not only coal, but natural gas. It, it's absolutely economic suicide for our families in our state. Uh, is this in court right now? It is. It's going to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Um, so, uh, Well, that's they're all Democrats, prayers, right? That, what are the chances right. of that? What are the chances of well, that of being I, stopped? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I hope, I don't know. 
and and I've talked about this w- with others. You know, I don't know. I'm hoping that at the end of the day, uh, look, if if the Supreme Court sides against the governor, it doesn't mean we shouldn't do these things. It just means that we come back to the legislature and have a good old fashioned discussion debate. Uh, and I hope that's what they do. I truly hope that's what they do. It makes absolutely no sense. And, and I would just share with your listeners, here's, here's the deal. The idea of Reggie, as, as many of them probably know, was to promise not to produce gas uh, and coal to try and lower our emissions. And until we get to these magic goals, which we can never attain, uh, we pay a penalty. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? It means you and I and everybody listening is artificially paying more for our electric bill and to heat our homes, whether you use coal, gas, oil, propane. Uh, we're paying more. So you, you and I, and particularly the listeners in southwestern Pennsylvania, are paying the price twice. They're slowing down the production of gas, so it's harming the economy. And secondly, we're all paying more to light up or heat or cool off our homes as we try to chase uh, energy stand or emission standards that we'll never reach. And, and look, on top of that, um, on top of that, the, the problem is, is that at the end of the day, we do have to heat our homes and we do have to power our buildings and we do have to run our cars and we're going to get the energy from somewhere. And, and as we saw with President Biden, when we run out of American energy, we have to import it from other places around the world. So this is just, to me, it's insane in every way. It kills jobs. Uh, makes us pay more, and it makes us dependent on other countries. There, I've yet to have anybody explain to me in any common sense way why we should do this. Um, and you mentioned Joe Biden. He has a promise to end the use of fossil fuels. Is Shapiro there with him on that? Is he is he rooting uh, for that too? Well, yeah, he is. What they do is they 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 like to set these goals down the road and talk about what's going to happen in twenty thirty or 2040, and Shapiro's in that camp, unfortunately. Look, folks that are in the real world understand is that when a president or a governor says we should be out of the fossil fuel business in 2030 or 2040, on the one hand, it's far away. On the other hand, it's not. So what happens is oil and gas companies stop exploring and looking for new places. They stop drilling. They stop getting the product out of the ground. So that's why we paid the price. That's why we're all paying, you know, three three fifty four dollars for gas. We're all paying four or five dollars for diesel. It's because these uh, geniuses uh, are trying to save the planet. Have announced they want to get out of the business, so the normal exploration is not taking place. But you know, John, there's another piece to this. To end fossil fuel is not just about running our cars. It's not just about heating our homes. Uh, I wrote a column because I want to talk about the part that Josh Shapiro, Joe Biden, and those folks, and the people throwing the people throwing soup at the Mona Lisa never talk about. Our entire way of living ends without fossil fuels, and I'm not talking about our cars or heating our homes. We, without fossil fuels, without oil and gas, you can't make plastics. You can't make IV bags or tubing. You can't build computers. You can't build cars. You can't build water bottles. You know, I I wrote about this. I talk about it. These folks, they keep saying, well, we're going to run everything by windmills and solar panels. First of all, you need oil and gas to make those things. But second, even if we could power our homes, and we, we we built solar panels from Pittsburgh to Peoria, 
you still can't make the plastics and the materials we need without oil and gas. The people throwing paint, uh, you know, at, at national treasures, they can't make paint without oil and gas. And that's a whole other part of the debate that, that unfortunately too many Democrats don't talk about. And that is we need oil and gas just to live our daily lives. Next time you go to the hospital, nearly everything in the hospital room, everything in the surgery room, some part of it is made with oil and gas. Without it, our quality of life falls apart. It's amazing that, and I agree with everything you just said, it's just amazing that people, uh, someone like Joe Biden, who's supposed to be a smart guy, I'm not so sure he is, but he's supposed to be one, that that he could go up and, as he did during his campaign, look somebody in the eye and say, I'm telling you right here, I'm going to end fossil fuels. How does he not know what you just said? How does he, he does he think it's does he really think it's just gas for the car and you know natural gas for your stove or your furnace? And he he doesn't realize that the car that he drove over in wasn't just powered by gas, but half the stuff in the car was made with oil. How you know, do they not I know think this? Unfortunately, yeah. Look, I think John. I mean, you know. I, I live in the real world like you. I, I you know, I, I'm not driven by a, a mad ideology. I live in the real world of common sense, right? I have a family and, and I have to provide for them. Look, I think too many of these elected officials, and particularly Biden and some of these others, is it's about elections and appeasing the loudest voices in the Democratic Party. It's it's about appeasing, you know, the, the summer leads of the world, the ones who are screaming and pounding the podium. So, look, no disrespect to President Biden, but he's trying to get through one more election. And keep his loudest, uh, noisiest voices happy so he can say this. Look, I think he's, you know, I've written about it, literally used the phrase, we're committing national suicide. We're committing national suicide. We've achieved an enormously uh, successful, a wonderful quality of life. And why we want to give up that quality of life to make things more expensive, to make things harder to operate, and make us dependent on other people. So... You and I are talking about, you know, where do we get the IV bags? Where do we get the computers? Where do you get the artificial hips or artificial knees? Here's the other issue. Why do we want, why do we want to import gas uh, or oil? I'm sorry. Why do we want to import oil from Venezuela or Saudi Arabia or Russia? Why do we want to let those people depend, determine our quality of life? And all this push to, to, to batteries, um, as, as some of your listeners may know, you can't make batteries without the Chinese sending us component parts. That's why I say this is national security, a national, a national security, national suicide. It is we are making ourselves dependent on our enemies, meanwhile harming people. You know, they talk all the time about, you know, Pennsylvania's population shrinking. What are we going to do in all of our small towns? How can we revive the economy in Beaver County? Or how can we revive the economy in Westmoreland County, Indiana County? And I keep screaming at the top of my for the love of God, we're sitting on more energy than Saudi Arabia. That's how you revive the economy. We can return energy jobs, manufacturing chemicals. We could employ tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Pennsylvanians, and we keep looking for a government program or some uh, miracle from Earth, and we're sitting on more energy than Saudi Arabia, literally more energy than Saudi Arabia, and it's sitting in southwestern Pennsylvania and along, you know, north of uh, Williamsport and Scranton. We have enough to supply the United States for 200 years, and 
you ask the question I'm trying to figure out, don't they understand? Yeah, and, and you know, we're talking about plastic, and, you know, that's a bad word. Some people, would, when they hear you say that all these all these things that are made out of plastic we couldn't make anymore, they'll, they'll be saying, good, we gotta we got to rid the world of plastic. And you, you keep coming across things like this. Uh, researchers at the University of Antwerp, Belgium, found out, this is, this is the kind of stuff I love, Guy, paper straws assessed by researchers at the University of Antwerp, Belgium, were found to contain more forever chemicals uh, uh, and polyfluoroalkali substances or something else, PFAS, than plastic. So in other words, the paper straws are going to be around longer than the plastic. And now they're making everybody use paper straws because it makes them feel better. Right. And, and, and again, I think you and I live in the real world. You know, I think with so many of these problems, I joke with my friends all the time, so many of these problems are created by politicians because they lack common sense. Some of these problems, I mean, you know, I don't mean to, you know, to be facetious, but if you talk to 10 people standing in line at a sheet, they would figure this out. You don't, we don't need to have scientists and, you know, uh, smart people and PhDs. Common sense people would say, you, you you need this stuff to make materials. You need this stuff to power. You need this stuff to create jobs. Why would you depend on others? I mean, again, you you, you say it. I look. I live I live in, in, in Chester County. I live near Valley Forge uh, National Park. Um, I live in a community that has banned plastic bags. So if I go to yeah, get yeah. Uh, you know takeout or pizza, uh, I've got to bring my own bag. Now, I laugh because, as your listeners would appreciate, if I go to pick up tacos on Friday night, they can't give me a plastic bag, but they put the tacos in styrofoam containers. So <laughs> we sell, we save the planet by yeah. not making plastic bags but making styrofoam containers. I mean, Again, this is stuff where those of us who live in the real world, those of us who care about practical answers, would never do this stuff. It's all of these folks chasing what I think is almost a cult uh, that's not based in reality. It's also, uh, I've, had, I've had people on the show here to talk about the fact that uh, pla- uh, eliminating plastic is actually, and going with paper bags is worse for the environment. I'll, you can do a whole column on that if you want. And by the way, just before I get to the next thing here, uh, right in front of me here, I see some studies show an association of PFAS exposure. That's the stuff that's in paper straws. Yeah. Uh, exposure yeah. with kidney and testicular cancer. So you may be helping yourself get cancer by drinking out of a, a paper straw. Before we go, we're talking to Guy Shiraki, a senior fellow with the uh, Commonwealth Foundation. Um, what is Brascom? i got about two minutes left. What happened with that? B-R-A-S-K-E-M. Yeah, here's the quick story. Brascom is the long, largest chemical company in the world. It's how It's how we make not only plastics, but, but different materials for engineering. Brascom's the largest chemical company in the world. They're in Brazil. They opened up a small facility down in Delaware County near the Delaware River um, at the other end of the energy that comes out of the ground in Washington County. It ultimately gets processed down in Delaware County along the Delaware River, the opposite side of the state. Brascom, the world's largest chemical company, opened a small facility in Delaware County because they thought they were going to get 100 years' worth or, or more of natural gas coming out of Washington County in southwestern Pennsylvania. And they thought they could make and manufacture plastics and all sorts of chemical component parts for, for science and engineering. Uh, 
They were going to put their North American headquarters here, employing thousands of people. And if they were going to employ thousands of people in Delaware County, it's because tens of thousands of people in southwestern Pennsylvania were going to be extracting the energy and building the pipes. But because Wolf started this Reggie business and started saying, well, we're going to get out of the natural gas business, Braskem put their world headquarters or their North American headquarters in Dallas, Texas, because in Texas they don't play games with energy. They learn how to get it out of the ground. Texas is serious about growing their economy. Uh, we killed we killed tens of thousands of jobs in southwestern Pennsylvania, getting the energy out of the ground and transporting it, and we killed tens of thousands of jobs in eastern Pennsylvania, where we could have been actually making things with the plastics that we would have been creating. We've killed those jobs, opportunities lost, and again, not based in common sense. Uh, and, um, well, the Texans got the advantage of it yet again. Yep, and if it's up to uh, Joe Biden, that, that will be everywhere. I appreciate you coming on, uh, Guy. Thanks. Uh, some really interesting stuff there. Scary and stupid, but interesting. I, I, I hope to have you on again soon. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity, John, and I will tell you, uh, I do this from time to time, but my mother-in-law is very excited. She was born and raised in Braddock, and now that I'm on in Pittsburgh, she's happy uh, now I finally have arrived, so you have made my mother-in-law happy, and I thank you for that. Oh, I, I'm glad we could make her happy, and I'm glad we made you happy, and let's, let's do it again. Thanks again, John. Take okay, care. Okay, that's, that's Guy Shiraki, and uh, we will be right back. Well, I wasn't going to talk about this, but during the conversation there with Guy Shiraki about the stupidity of the government's, uh, the governor's plan for the... Uh, Oh, I guess the elimination of fossil fuels in Pennsylvania. Uh, he mentioned straws, and I, I, I looked up and I found this is this is hilarious. This is from Science Focus at the BBC. I didn't know this, uh, but did you know that the original drinking straw was made of straw? That's why it's called a straw. It's uh, they they were a byproduct of growing crops such as wheat and rye, and they somehow they just made the straw out of the shaft of the wheat or something. I don't know. But anyway, everybody knows that eventually they went from, you know, paper straws get soggy. So somebody came up with the idea, hey, you know, plastic straws are nice. They, they stay in shape. They don't, they don't, uh, make your food taste bad. They, they don't, you know, just get soggy. It's great. So they came up. Then they decided that the plastic is killing the, uh, environment and killing the turtles and all that stuff. So, um, <laughs> the, the, they did a study. On the rise of forever chemicals, they they saw that they saw that the paper straws found themselves to have uh, they repel liquids and resist getting soggy and all that. Could there be an additive they wanted that might be uh, allowing paper straws to perform so well? Well, the first study was performed performed by somebody named Alina Tamishina, and uh, they they found out that there are fluorine based chemicals that have remarkable properties. In repelling water, grease, and pretty much anything, the problem is that uh, these chemicals uh, they don't go away. They're once they once they are, once you make them and you put them in the ground, they they they're they're tougher to make disappear than plastic. And I mentioned that there was a another um, study that showed that they might cause testicular and kidney cancer. So. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe they're not such a good idea. It's just me. Now, as you know, I go up to Canada a lot, and it's in Ontario. And I don't know if it's an Ontario thing, 
or if it's the little town where I go, but every place in town, every restaurant in town, you get a paper straw. You know, you, just, you can't get a plastic straw. So I'm going to take this report up, and I'm going to maybe pass out some leaflets to the restaurants up there. Think that'll work? No. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.